In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We'll continue our Bible study from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 23, starting from verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So, the Lord Jesus Christ finished six trials, three religious trials, one before Qiyafa, the other one before the Sanhedrin, third one before Herod, sorry, before Hanan. Then, three civil trials, one before Pontius, Pontius Pilate, second one before Herod, third one before Pontius Pilate again. So after these six trials, although Pilate and Herod confessed and admitted that Jesus is innocent, but Pilate uh, yielded to the opinion of the people to uh, crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. So they led him away. They led the Lord Jesus Christ away from the court after he had been brutally scourged and mocked, as it is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Usually, those who condemned to crucifixion were usually tied to a wooden crossbeam. Two beams like a cross, and they bound them or tied them to this wooded crossbeam, and they were forced to carry it to the site of execution. But the Lord Jesus Christ was tired because all night he was in trial, he did not sleep at all, and then he was scourged, beaten, so he was very, very tired. So he fell under the cross. So they found a man who is Cyrenian. Cyrenian, it is now Libya. So there was a large colony of Jews in the powerful African city of Cyrene. And the Cyrenian had a synagogue at Jerusalem. And Simon may have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. As it was the custom during this feast, all the Jewish outside Jerusalem, they have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover there. So it is possible that he was a Jewish pilgrim, Jewish who lived in Cyrene like St. Mark, But during the Passover, he went to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But St. Ephraim said that Simon was a Gentile, not a Jewish. And he went to Jerusalem because of the trade. And St. Ephraim thought it ironic that he should bear the burden of the cross behind Jesus like a disciple, if he was a Gentile. But in this, if he was a Gentile, according to St. Ephraim, there is actually a, a symbol or a prophecy here that later on the Gentiles, like all of us, would indeed carry their witness of the cross to the ends of the earth in professing Christ. So all of us who were Gentiles, Now we carry the cross and we are witnesses of the cross when we profess Christ as our Savior and our Lord. St. Mark referred to Simon that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And as I told you, Jesus had become too weak from his scourging to carry his cross beam the entire distance. So he fell under the cross. The Roman soldiers 
impressed Simon into service. And on him they laid the cross. They actually asked him to lay the cross for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he was forced to carry the cross. This is what St. Mark mentioned in Mark 15, 21. So that's what Mark said, that Simon was forced to carry the cross. It is not certain whether they made Simon carry the entire cross, the two beams, or part of the burden only. Because there is an opinion, there is one beam is fixed in the place of crucifixion, the vertical one. And the person condemned to crucifixion carry only the horizontal one. So maybe what Simon carried is part, not the whole cross beam. Verse 27, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. So, although many reproached him and reviled him during the trial, yet some sympathized with him and were walking with him to the place of crucifixion, and the women started to cry, mourned and lamented him, including many women who were probably the women disciples from the Galilee, who will be named as witnesses to the crucifixion, those who stood at the cross and went with him to the tomb. And these women on Sunday morning went early in the morning to put spices on his body. Verse 28, But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming. That is the days of the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD. The days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And here again, St. Mark mentioned a very characteristic incident incident that was not mentioned by the other, other evangelists. What the Lord said to these women, neither Matthew or Mark or John mentioned, only Mark mentioned, uh, Luke mentioned. Apparently Mark, uh, Luke, sorry, Luke, as he said in chapter 1, he recruited the people who were close to Jesus Christ and asked him, them to tell the, him about what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously, he got th this incident from devout women to whom actually he uh, listened and traced so many facts which he alone recorded for us in his gospel. And this, the only recorded words between his condemnation and crucifixion. After the trial, these the only recorded words. And on the cross, he mentioned seven words. Seven words. So, Jesus, who usually sympathized with people and empathized with them, more than he did with his own feelings or his own suffering. So here the Lord forgot his own distress, although the burden was very heavy upon him. And he turned it to them with love, compassion, tenderness, addressing them and telling them, do not weep for me. 
do not weep for me. As if he is telling them, you don't have to be under any concern on my account. I came to die by my own will. I am not forced to die. And I desire nothing more than to die and to save the people. That is the purpose why I came to the world. I'm not afraid to die. I am going to the cross with the greatest courage. And my suffering, although they are great, but very soon they will be over. And in the third day, I'll, I will rise from the dead. So don't weep for me. Don't weep over me. But weep over yourselves. And he addressed them daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem, maybe he addressed these women particularly. Or daughter of Jerusalem, as many of the church fathers said, he addressed the whole Jewish nation. All the Jews considered children of Jerusalem. He addressed them here, daughters of Jerusalem. He declared to the Jewish people that it is appropriate for them that they rather weep over what will happen to Jerusalem. As we know, uh, on 70 AD, it was a day of judgment on Jerusalem. On that day, Jerusalem was destroyed. All the palaces and houses were destroyed. Even the temple was destroyed and never built until today. So, and these were, these days were very, very difficult days for the people living in Jerusalem. Uh, so, Bible scholars who insisted that Jerusalem and the temple were already destroyed by the time Luke wrote his gospel. Why? Some scholars said St. Luke wrote his gospel after 70, after the destruction of Jerusalem. Because he was very accurate about what will happen to Jerusalem. But these scholars don't believe in the prophetic uh, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But they are wrong. We know for sure that Luke wrote his gospel before the destruction of Jerusalem. And what he mentioned about the destruction of Jerusalem is considered prophecies that are very, very accurate because it was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the event already taken place according to their claim, so the St. Luke and the other gospel writers, they will refer to these prophecies that the Lord said about Jerusalem as fulfilled. You know, when a prophecy is fulfilled, usually they mention the prophecy and they say it is fulfilled. So if the destruction of Jerusalem happened already, St. Luke would have written that according to what the Lord Jesus Christ said and prophesied, and this prophecy was fulfilled. So Luke wrote it before the destruction of Jerusalem. And here the Lord said, in these days, the people, the Jewish people will say, blessed are the barren. barren. In the Jewish custom, in Jewish tradition, they actually praised motherhood and considered being barren is a reproach. But why during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, people will say blessed are the barren because of the suffering that they will face during these days. The days of the fall of Jerusalem would be so severe that women would far prefer not to have children. And the people in Jerusalem will begin to say to the mountain, fall on us. This is an expression to signify their need for a shelter or a place of refuge.
It is an image of great calamities and judgments where they will seek to go into the holes of the rocks and caves of the earth as is prophesied of them in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19. And actually Josephus says that many of them went to hide in caves and the holes of the rocks when the city was taken. Uh, Say to the mountain, fall on us. This was written in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. So the Lord Jesus here quoted from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, using this expression of agony. Say to the mountain, fall on us. And its expression of agony and despair that Hosea said that the hopeless people of Israel will cry at their hour of judgment, the day of judgment of Jerusalem, the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. And historically, we know hundreds of the Jews at the end of the siege hid themselves in the cave. And according to the historians, more than 2,000 persons were killed by being, by being buried under the ruins of these hiding places. The same figure will be repeated at the end of the world. And the wicked, at the day of judgment, in the end of the world, they will say the same words, to the mountains fall on us, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. Then the Lord said, if they do these things in green wood. Also, this expression is very known and in frequent use among the Jews. They compared a good man to a green tree, which is hard to burn, and a bad man to a dead and dry tree that you can burn easily. So the Lord referring to himself uh, as a green wood, and he is saying, if a righteous person suffer like this, like me, what will become of the wicked? If they put Jesus to death, being who he is, the son of God, what will happen to Jerusalem when its day of judgment comes? what happened in 70 AD. So here we see the Lord Jesus Christ going to his death, but still desiring to show grace and love. That's why he stopped on the way to Golgotha in order to deliver a warning cry to all who have ears to hear. And this warning in order for them to repent before the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. For more humiliation, they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ between two thieves, one on the right and the other on the left. And thus the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53, verse 12, were fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was in the middle of two thieves, as if he had been the greatest criminal of the three. That's why they put him in the middle. And many Commentators suppose that these were companions of Barabbas, Barabbas the robber who was released by Pontius Pilate. Verse 33, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Calvary means skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the the left. So Calvary is called the place of the skull 
And this was the place where criminals were crucified. Why it is called the place of the skull? Because traditionally, they said that the skull of Adam was buried in this place where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And when the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, dropped from him on the cross, on the ground, uh, pierced it inside the ground, actually, the tradition says, these drops of blood hit the skull of Adam. Crucifixion was a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death, slow death, with maximum pain and suffering. That's why it's considered the severest form of torture. You die slowly with maximum pain and suffering. And beyond the extreme pain of suffering, the major effect of crucifixion was to restrict normal believing. Why? A person who is crucified, the weight of the body pulling down on the arm and the shoulder, tended to fix the respiratory muscles in inhalation state and hence exhalation. That's every time he wants to take his breath, he has actually to pull himself up in order to be able to breathe. And pulling himself up, actually, he will be uh, uh, pressuring himself against the nails. And against, you know, the, the wood of the cross was not smooth like this. It's a tree. So can you imagine the back that's full of wounds? Now moving against the rough wood and the pressure of the body, the weight of the body against the nails in his hand and in his feet in order to be able to take breath. And the lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps which further hindered breathing. In the middle of all of this, the Lord, what did he say? In verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. So, now the silence is broken. Maybe we expect that he will cry of anguish or sigh of passionate complaint. And why, why this happens to me? But no, the Lord cried with words of pity and intercession. He taught us to forgive. He taught us to pray for those who persecute us. Now he is applying his teaching. What he taught us in the Sermon on the Mountain, now he is applying. And that's why his children and disciples like St. Stephen learned how to pray for those who persecute them, as we read in Acts chapter 7. The Lord, as I told you, spoke seven words on the cross. The first one, is Father forgive them. First one. St. Luke recorded three that were not recorded by others. St. John recorded three that were not recorded by others. And while he is praying, he is trying to find an excuse for them. And he told, they do not know what they do. So the Lord recognizes the blindness of his enemies in his prayers, finding an excuse before God the Father. Also, every cross, the custom was to be guarded by guard of four soldiers. And the Lord had caught. So, they cast lots on the coat. Why? 
According to then John, it was without seam. So, the Lord's seamless tunic was theologically symbolic of the seamless tunic only worn by the priests serving God in the temple, which is an indication that he is the high priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. St. John Chrysostom adds that the poorness of the Lord's garment and that in dress, as in all other things, he means that he followed a simple fashion. He was very simple. Verse 35, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. So who are the rulers? St. Luke used this general term or generic term for the member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew did not use the word rulers, but he said the chief priests, scribes, elders. So these members of Sanhedrin are called by Luke the rulers. And the people also stood looking on him. It's a cruel and upsetting sight. They were insulting him and reviling him. Did not have compassion on him while he was uh, in pain on the cross. And they were waging their heads at him, as did also those who passed by. They rejoiced over his suffering, as if they had conquered him. But in reality, at this moment, he was conquering sin and dying on their behalf. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. And these are the words of Qiyafa during the trial, as St. John recorded for us in John 11.50. But this was actually unconscious prophecy that the Lord came to save others. And indeed, he saved the world on the cross. Also by saying he saved others, they admitted the work that he had done, like he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he has power over death. And if you read Psalm 22, you will find David prophesied about these wicked people who are sneering and making fun and reproaching the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And they challenged him to save himself for the cross as he saved others. But in reality, on the cross, he saved us from eternal perdition. They heard him praying for their forgiveness. But because of their hardened hearts, this prayer did not touch their heart. Neither their hearts or the hearts of the soldiers, because the soldiers also mocked him too. Their duty is to guard him and to watch over him. But they mocked him. Usually, as I told you, it's a slow death. The, so the crucified person sometimes remain alive upon the cross for days. If you remember, Jesus gave up his, his soul, but the other two criminals, they had to break their legs. Why breaking their legs will uh, expedite their death? Because now they cannot pull themselves up to 
take their breath so they will die from asphyxia. Uh, so the soldiers mocked him in rough way and they offered him sour wine. Uh, and the word mocked meant they lifted up to his lips the vessels they contained, uh, the vessels containing the sour wine. And they were mocking him. But the other Gospels included information that Roman soldiers tried to give the Lord Jesus Christ wine mixed with myrrh that was prepared to reduce the pain of the crucified person. St. Matthew told us he had tasted it, but did not drink it. Maybe the Lord tasted it in courteous recognition of the kindly purpose of the act. They offered him the sour wine to reduce his pain. So she has just tasted as if he appreciated, but he refused to do more because he would not reduce the sense of pain. And the soldiers, in mocking him, repeated what was said before about he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. Uh, and this statement, although the intention of it to mock him, but it is a true statement. He came not to save himself, but he came to save others. Verse 38, and an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. It was a common Roman practice to post the crime for which a person was being executed and the name of the condemned man. So the the custom is to write the, his name and his crime. Pilate is the one who ordered this sign and he said, the king of the Jews. Uh, and most probably he chose these words carefully to the displeasure of the chief priests because they forced him to crucify him. Luke does not tell us when the, when the inscription was written, but he observed in general that there was a title placed over him. In the Gospel of St. John chapter 19, we read that the religious leaders were offended by this title and objected this title. They felt it was false because they did not believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Also, it is demeaning for them as if the Roman power, they have power to humiliate and torture their king, the king of the Jews. And they asked Pilate to take it off and to write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. And he told them, what I have written, I have written. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So all four Gospels agree that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. But St. Luke is the only one to include the story of the repentant criminal. Traditionally, he was the thief on the right side. So, one of them 
joined in mockery and scorn. And he reasoned, if Jesus was truly the Messiah, he would save himself and save the both criminals. This thief did not seek salvation truly. The word save us, it's not the eternal salvation, but save us from the suffering. He asked not to be delivered from his sin. If he asked deliverance from his sin, definitely Jesus would grant him forgiveness. It's interesting to notice that Matthew and Mark indicated that both criminals mocked Jesus at the beginning. On the right hand, on the left hand, both of them mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. But the one on the right hand, although at first he mocked the Lord Jesus Christ, but later on, uh, he started to see things differently. Maybe when the earthquake happened, when the darkness happened. So he started actually to put his trust in Jesus. And first thing he did, he rebuked the other thief. And he told him, do you not even fear God? So it's clear that the thief on the right side, he feared and reverent God, and he knew his sin. He knew that God is just. That's why he is telling the other thief, now you are about to die and to leave the world. And until now you don't fear God, not regarding men. How you are, have no compassion toward our fellow sufferer. Now you are adding sin to your sins. And this thief admitted that both committed crimes against the law and their sentence is just and righteous. They are righteously punished, which shows that he had a true sense of sin. That's repentance. He is a genuine repentant and gives the fullest proof he can give of it. When he said, we are rightly, justly judged, condemned. He had sin, he acknowledged his sin, his acknowledgement of the justice of his sin. And while he condemned himself, he also bore testimony that the Lord was innocent. So, from the mouth of one of the criminals Christ suffered with, he was declared innocent. When he said, this man has done nothing wrong. And he prayed in verse 42, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a humble prayer. And he calls Jesus Lord, whom his own apostles, and while the apostles left him, he called him Lord. He believed Jesus that uh, he is the true Messiah. And he acknowledged him to be the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord of all and his own Lord. He confessed and admitted that the second coming of the Lord, when you come. And Jesus immediately answered him. Jesus did not say one word to the other thief, even a word of blame, a word of rebuke. He said nothing to the other thief who condemned him or to the multitude that mocked him, or to the soldiers. But he promised this repentant thief more than he asked him. He asked just for remembrance. But, and, and he asked to remember him when he comes. So he gave him more and sooner. He told him, today you will be with me in the paradise. 
So the Lord answering the thief, assuring him that his life after death would be with the Lord Jesus in paradise, not in Hades. This thief called on Jesus with such reverent faith at the moment of his deepest humiliation. The Lord was, yeah, he did not actually believe in the Lord when he was transfigured on Mount Tabor, but he believed in him while he was at the weakest point in his life. Weakest point outwardly. Uh, he remembered him, but not the Lord remembered the thief. Not in the distant and far away in the second coming, but on that very day. Today you will be with me. He would not be remembered by him only, by Jesus only, but would be in closest companionship with the Lord. He, he, not only he will remember him, but he told him, you will be my companion, you will be with me. Many people says, what did this thief has done? Actually, his act of righteousness in defending Jesus in front of the other thief, his penance in acknowledging his sin, his profession of faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, in second coming, all of this he won to himself the promise of eternal salvation. Verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. So this verse gives us the time of the duration of the darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. St. Matthew gave us additional uh, uh, details about this phenomenon. He says, beside the darkness, there was also an earthquake. Several graves were opened. Dead during these hours of intense gloom appeared to many in the holy city. And the remarkable darkness all over the earth showed the agony of the creation itself when they saw their creator suffering on the cross. Tertullian and Origen and many early Christian writers like Eusebius quote word from Phlegon, a Roman historian, in which he mentioned of this strange phenomena about the time of crucifixion, how the sun was darkened, although according to the uh, science, this was not a time for the sun to be darkened. It was evidently uh, no slight or imaginary sign. It was real darkness. And everyone noticed during this time. And the veil of the temple was torn. This is the inner veil that separates between the holy and the holy of the holies. This veil was very heavy and adorned with embroidery. And St. Paul mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews. So this veil uh, got torn from the middle because the veil represented the separation between us and God. Now this enmity was erased and now we are reconciled with God the Father. That's why the Holy of the Holies was opened to all those who believe. Uh, and the Holy of the Holies is no longer a place not to be approached. But now all of us, we have access to the heavenly holy of the holies in Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. St. Luke did not mention Eli, Eli, Lama Shabaktani, that Matthew mentioned, 
and the effect of this cry on the multitude. But he mentioned that he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And this, a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. And I want you to notice that none of the evangelists used the word Jesus died. Because the correct or the accurate theological term, he accepted death unto him. So he allowed death to come to him. He did not... The word that means die means he died against his own will. But the Lord, he died by his own will and authority alone. If he did not allow death to approach him, he wouldn't die. So the sitting of his spirit was his own voluntary act. As he said uh, about his own independent power to lay down his soul and to take it up again. When he said, no one takes it from me. In the Old Testament before crucifixion, Satan used to take the souls of all the people to Hades. But Satan could not approach the Lord Jesus Christ. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again in his resurrection. So Jesus gave up his life when he wanted to and how he wanted to. And the Father received the spirit of Jesus. And Jesus received our own souls when we die as we read in the story of St. Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Verse 47, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the, and the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. So the centurion, centurion was in command of the soldiers, the four guards who guarded the cross. And it is remarkable that St. Luke gave us several examples of good centurions, more than one example. He, the centurion glorified God how by confessing that Christ is the Son of God and declaring that he is innocent. So this centurion surely saw many people crucified before. But about Jesus, there was something so remarkable, so different. And this myth the centurion say about Jesus what he could not say about anyone else. He is the son of God. He is a righteous man. Certainly this was a righteous man, innocent of all the charges against him, and he suffered wrongfully. The centurion claimed that after seeing those unusual appearances and which he considered a sign of divine resentment and I want here to, bear, to bring to your attention that Christ had a testimony from many, many, many people that he was innocent, except the religious leaders of Israel, the scribe and the priests and Pharisees. So let's count. Pontius Pilate and Herod declared that he is innocent. Pilate's wife acknowledged him in a dream that he is a righteous man. The thief on the cross testified that he had done nothing wrong. Judas the traitor confessed that he betrayed innocent blood. The multitude who gathered around the cross beat their breasts and returned. And here the centurion also said he is a righteous man. So how many people actually testified that he is innocent man? Unfortunately, only those who claim to be teachers of the law are blinded and hardened their hearts to their own destruction. St. Ambrose of Milan said the centurion recognized a stranger, but the Levite, the Jews, did not know his own. The Gentile worshipped him, but the Hebrew denies him. 
it was reasonable that the pillars of the world moved when the chief priest did not believe. So the creation moved, but the chief priest did not believe. And the verse about the multitude beat their breasts and returned reflect how the multitude very quickly after they saw the sun is dark and the earthquake, graves are open. So they regretted their cry to crucify him, crucify him, and felt so guilty. Verse 49, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. All his acquaintances, this word is intermediate between the multitude who left and the true affirmed disciples like the women. And the women. Luke did not mention their names as Matthew and Mark because he mentioned their names before. Uh, he had already given the names before in his gospel. He stood at a distance. They were disciples, but perhaps some of them were disciples in secret. And they did not have the courage to be so close to the cross. Uh, and this actually may be fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 38, verse 11. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member in the Sanhedrin, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed to crucify the Lord. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 most distinguished members of the ruling classes. A notable man of high distinction in Jerusalem and very rich. As Luke described him, he was a good and just man, one who united in his character two important principles of morality, good and just, justice and mercy. Good means merciful, just, justice. Although Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, which condemns the Lord Jesus Christ to be crucified, he did not join them in their unjust sentence. Either he declined to be present or he objected this decision. Joseph did not serve Jesus in many ways, but he did serve him in a way no one else did or could by offering his own grave to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not possible for Peter, James, John, or any other or the women to provide a tomb, but Joseph provided his own tomb. Joseph was a secret disciple to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was eager, eager to listen to him. Uh, secret due to fear, he could, not he could not declare being his follower. But when the time of crucifixion came, this fear was gone and was replaced by great courage and asked boldly for the Lord's body. As we read in verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. St. Augustine said, for fear he was a secret disciple, but dared to ask for the Lord's body, which none of those who followed Jesus dared to ask for his body. Luke said about him, waiting for the kingdom of God, mean waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So when Jesus came, he believed in him that he is the Messiah. St. Ephraim the Syrian made beautiful comparison between Joseph the carpenter and Joseph uh, uh, of Arimathea. He said, he who asked for his own body was also named Joseph. The earlier Joseph, the carpenter, was a righteous man who did not denounce St. Mary publicly. The other one, Joseph of Arimathea, was also a righteous man, 
because he did not consent to the detractors, the Sanhedrin. So that it might be clear that the Lord was entrusted at the beginning to one having this name, Joseph, when he was born. He further allowed the one with his name, Joseph, to prepare him for burial when he was dead. Customarily, the bodies of the crucified criminals were left on the cross to rot or to be eaten by birds. But the Jews wanted no such horror displayed during these days because it was the Passover feast. And the Romans were known to grant bodies to friends or relatives for proper uh, burial. So Joseph reverently took down the pierced and bleeding body of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrapped it tenderly and carefully in the finest linen, as we read in verse 53. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Uh, where no one had ever lain before, so that it could not be said it was another person who rose from the dead. So nobody was buried there. So in the resurrection, only one body, Jesus. So it is Jesus who rose from the dead. Tomb heaven in, in Iraq was very expensive. And it was a quiet sacrifice for Joseph of Arimathea to give his tomb to Jesus. But all these circumstances were planned by God to confirm the truth of his resurrection later on. Christ was buried in haste because of the Sabbath Druni, as we read in verse 54. That day was a pre- it was Friday, was a preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Sabbath drew near means this became close to sunset. Uh, so it refers Sabbath came near it does not refer to the sunrise but sunset because the Jewish day starts from sunset to uh, sunrise Uh, verse 55 and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how he, his body was laid. This is the last verse. Then they returned and prepared the spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. Uh, earlier, Luke explained that the company of our Lord Jesus Christ, disciples, and also included women. So, the women and the followers followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the garden tomb. And they knew exactly the place of his burial. That's why on the resurrection morning, there was no mistake. They knew exactly his tomb. And as the sunset now rapidly approaching, these women must have hurried uh, home, went home, to complete the preparation before the Sabbath began. They did not have enough time to prepare spices and ointment for the body. Usually, they use spices and perfume. So, because it was hurry, they put spices, not perfume. That's why they they went Sunday morning to put the perfume. So, on Good Friday, one of the common mistakes in the icon of the burial, uh, we put only spices. We don't put perfume because the women did not have time to put perfume. We put only spices on the icon of the burial. Uh, So they did not have time to prepare spices and ointment for the body because no work could be performed on the Sabbath, not even attending to the burial of a family member. So they prepared the fragrant oil and spices for the anointing and preserving the body of Christ. 
which means they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not have any hope in resurrection on the third day. That's why they want to prepare his body. And St. John indicates that Joseph and Nicodemus had brought with them about 75 pounds of myrrh and alms. These were inserted in the wrapping that were wrapped in each limb with the stripes of linen. So the women went early on Sunday to bring spices and perfume to complete the body preparation on Sunday morning. This concludes chapter 23 from the Gospel of St. Luke. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.